My name's Pippa Goldfinger, and I'm the head of program at the Architecture Centre just next door. This evening's talk is part of a program of events linked to the current exhibition, which is Murdered with Straight Lines, The Drawings of Garth England. Garth was a Bristol milkman, amongst other things, who at the end of his life recorded the Bristol streets where he grew up and worked in through meticulous drawings and notes, and it's a really wonderful exhibition. I recommend you come and visit us. Um, also, do check out our website for future events. Um, our next major event, which I think is here, isn't it, Jody? Yeah. Is a balloon debate in September, on the 6th of September. Bit of housekeeping, could you all put your phones on silent, please? Um, and on to this evening's talk. It's on 20th century housing, and I'm sure there'll be plenty to reflect on in relation to our own current housing crisis. Our speakers have both written about 20th century housing from a national and citywide perspective. John Grindrod is the author of Concrete Topia, a journey through the real rebuilding of post-war Britain, and more recently, Outskirts, Living Life on the Edge of the Green Belt. And I think there'll be um, copies available to buy after the talk, and John may have time to do some signing if you're lucky. John's written for the Sunday Times, Guardian, Financial Times, The Big Issue, The Modernist, and has worked as a bookseller and publisher for over 25 years. Peter Insull is the Principal Historic Environment Officer at Bristol City Council and Research Associate at the University of Bristol. During 2010 to 2011, Peter managed the award-winning English Heritage-funded project to create Know Your Place, an online mapping resource, which I highly recommend, although it can be a thief of time. So fascinating. Um, I'll just hand you over to us two speakers shortly, and we'll take questions at the end. And we're actually going in the reverse order to what I expected. So uh, first of all, I'd like you to welcome Pete Insull. Thank you very much, Pippa, and thank you, everyone, for uh, coming tonight to listen to these uh, two talks. Um, I thought I'd just start off... What I'm going to talk about is actually... The reason why we reversed it, if people who know John's book, uh, you'll know that John is going to be focusing very much on the post-war uh, developments, whereas my interest to date has really been on the interwar period in terms of uh, Ebenezer Howard's influence on the city and the, the changes in the landscape that resulted from uh, things like the Housing Act of 1919. So that's what I'm going to be mainly focusing on. Um, but I just thought it'd be good to start with a little bit of politics uh, at the beginning, because you can't talk about housing without politics. And so this little bit of political, I guess you could call it propaganda, um, from 1933. So really it's the end of the story from my perspective. The Minister of Health, Sir Hilton Young, commences his tour of the Bristol slum areas in connection with the government's slum clearance scheme by a visit to a block of flats provided on the site of a former slum area. Well, you've got a very nice flat, ma'am, yeah? I only wish everybody in Bristol had just had a good flat to go into. Better than the old bad slum buildings, isn't it? Yes. Very much better. 
Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for letting me come in. It's a very good thing to think that it's all coming down, because I understand this is already condemned and fixed up. Now we are standing here in an area of the city of Bristol, which is to be cleared away under the national campaign against slums of the sort. And I'm quite sure that nobody who sees this sort of dwelling but must be very glad to think that it will no longer be inhabited by human beings. And it is quite unfit for human habitation. This is an example to the rest of the country about what is expected in connection with this great national campaign for getting rid of the evil of the slums. I am like the minister. I should like very much to see the back of these filthy old dwellings. I love the way that ends there. And I, I think that it could be that because it's such a big topic, I've only got 30 minutes to talk about this, that my ending could be very much like that one when Pippa drags me off uh, as part of I'm trying to you know, tell you about what's, what's happened in Bristol. Um, that's where the minister was in that film. Um, so the flats are still there on Eugene Street. Um, they're now used as nurses' accommodation as part of the BRI. Um, what's interesting here, though, that, as I say, that's the end of the process, but all of the things I'll be talking about when it's talking about the interwar period, these are things that were all designed actually in the 20s. That was designed in the 20s, but as the minister was you know, talking about there, wasn't actually built and inhabited till the early 30s. And Bristol didn't actually tackle the slums in any uh, coordinated way until the 1930s, after the 1930 Housing Act. So before that, most of the... Um, the actual developments in Bristol were actually for general, general needs, so general lack of accommodation. So one of the things that are a recurring theme that we'll be talking about is that both in 1919 and again in 1945, there were these massive housing shortages that the country as a whole decided to tackle and actually started building huge numbers of houses. So in Bristol, between 1919 and 1939, the council actually built 15,000 houses across the city. Now, when you compare it with other core cities, that's fairly low, because other, you know, places like Manchester and Birmingham are building many, many more. But in a, in a, alongside the council house estate building, we're also subsidising a lot of private developments. So just to give you an indication of the type of developments that we have, hopefully that's clear on the, on the map there, that map is showing where all the housing estates are in the city. So the, the council housing estates are the red ones, not just the red dots, but the red areas. So you've got Sea Mills, which is a con our conservation area, the only one that's a, a conservation area. It was built, started building in 1920. You've got Hillfields over to the east. You've got Knoll and Bedminster towards the bottom here, S Southmead towards the top, and the Hallfield in the middle in the red. The grey is the post-war council housing estate. So many more houses were built in the post-war period after 1945. And the orange is actually interwar housing areas that were built by private developers. So actually the private de developers actually built many more houses than the council did. However, 
Those private developments, a lot of those were actually with government subsidy. So although the council housing, is, that is government money coming in to build those estates, the private areas like Henleys, Stoke Bishops, these sorts of areas were also being built with a degree of subsidising from central government or local, well, then the local authority. <clears throat> but it didn't start in 1919 in a way in terms of tackling the housing needs of the city. Um, our first garden suburb is actually pre-First World War. So we can actually see here the Bristol Garden Suburb in Shirehampton. This was developed between 1909 and 1913. And it was actually instigated by Elizabeth Sturge, who actually moved back to Bristol from London. Um, and alongside George Oatley, was uh, one of the key members of the board for the Bristol Garden Suburb Company. Um, and it was built as the name would suggest, in Shorehampton. And on land owned by Philip Napier-Miles. And there it is today. The original intention was to build 84 houses. By 1913, they'd only built 44. And by that point, they actually had run out of money, effectively. So they weren't able to actually fully develop. It would have gone a lot further west. That's a view looking from the south. So it's passage leaves. Um, Shirehampton High Street is off the, the image, up to the, the top of the image there. Um, now, these actual properties are you know, just terrific buildings, built in arts and crafts style, um, very nicely designed, but it was, again, private development with that. That's pre any subsidising from government, central government. We also have an example, so that's our earliest garden suburb, but we also have an example of a munitions estate. This one here is at King's Western. This was called the Lower Shirehampton Garden Suburb. And this was laid out in 1918 with the intention of, because Avonmouth had become such an important place in the First World War, in terms of workers' housing. And that is then the theme that runs through. The Shirehampton Garden Suburb is, is supposed to be a mix of uh, populace living there, both rich and working classes. Here it was for the workers working predominantly at the National Smelting Factory, which is on St Andrews Road, which in 1918 was making mustard gas. So the mustard gas uh, munitions workers were living in these houses here. Again, they're still there today. That's, not, that's a photo from about 1950. And inside had all... We're talking about when we lived in modern times. That's the mod cons of 1918. So the people living here before then, this is their scullery looking through to a bathroom area with the tin bath. And their lounge, or parlour, in most of these, all these houses had a parlour, so you had a living room and a parlour. And so I'll be coming back to that kind of de description further in the talk, um, because you have two, re two reception rooms. And here is the parlour, and then in 1950 it gets modernised, so the council's been doing a lot of modernising in the 1950s, and that's the idea of modernising uh, in the 1950s. <clears throat> then in 1919, what happens in the First World War, housing building across the city had completely dropped. So there was a huge housing crisis. So um, Lloyd George then does his famous uh, we must build homes fit for heroes talk. So the idea that servicemen returning from the First World War have got to have houses that are going to be fit for their for their families to live in. Um, so they introduced the Housing Act of 1919. And that instigated that a whole programme of building across the country. And in Bristol, 
uh, the corporation decided to start building four estates across the city. The first one was Hillfields here, and the idea behind these was that the council would actually design the estates, and it went from the actual layout of the estate itself to the actual, um, the actual houses within the estate. So Hillfields here. I mean, if anyone knows Ebenezer Howard and what's he talking about, garden suburbs, you, you, when you see that from the and plan form, they're actually very attractive things. They've got these lovely sweeping crescents, um, beautiful layouts. You've got areas for recreation. You've got areas for allotments. You've got big gardens for growing your own fruit and veg and so on. So that's 1920, they start building Hillfields. Now, one of the things about Hillfields, because it's not just the general layout, they're also trying to get to a point where they can build houses for a, a reasonable cost. So they're experimenting with what are the best house designs for any of these estates, because they want to make sure they can churn out these houses at a, um, a relatively low cost. And they had this area of Hillfields, which is actually towards the in this area here, called the demonstration area. And even today, you can go around there and you'll see a much more greater variety of house types there because they had a huge number of architects actually designing the individual houses, experimenting to test out which ones would be and what the prices would be to actually build the houses. And in typical garden suburb style, they are low, short terraces or some semi-detached, or so not in the demonstration area. There's, no, there's just one semi-detached pair there. What's interesting here is also they were experimenting putting in two-bedroom houses. And these are the area, the only area in the city of any council houses that have got two bedrooms. The rest, after this phase, every council house in the city in the interwar period had three bedrooms because in June 1920, there were a lot of delegates came to the city to visit this site and have a look at what Bristol were doing in terms of building and responding to the 1919 Act. They looked at the houses, these were all two-bedroomed houses here, and they said that's just not, that's not going to be suitable for a growing family. So the corporation after that point, they only ever built three-bedroomed houses. So that's a drawing by Samuel Loxton showing the area of the demonstration area being built in 1920. And these are these um, um, two-bedroomed terraced houses there very much arts and crafts. And what's interesting about these, these are designed by Heathman Blacker and um, the Blackman, and that's Ev Evelyn Blackman, who's um, actually um, you know, one of the few female architects, if not the first, the only first uh, female architect at the time. And it's interesting that she had to be accompanied by a man in terms of the, uh, the name on the architects on the design sheets. That's what uh, a typical road in Hillfields looked like by the 1920s. So you've got Hillfields. The other main estate that we quite often talk about, I mentioned earlier, is Sea Mills. So this is our only uh, conservation area in the city for an interwar estate. And this is being laid out at the same time. Again, you can see from the, the aerial view here the typical garden suburb layout with the kind of sweeping arcs of roads. I'll, I'll just gloss over sea mills in a way because I, I think that it's had a lot of attention because of its conservation area status. Um, and I think actually Hillfields and some of the other estates are actually better examples in some respects of what a garden suburb should be. But just when I say about the four, you had Hillfields, sea mills, one of the other ones was Shirehampton. 
And what the way they approached the housing in Shirehampton in 1920 was actually to use some of the army huts that were there for the remount depot, which is a huge depot they established in Shirehampton during the First World War to remount, i.e. provide new mounts for the army. And uh, so these huts were originally part of that remount camp, army huts, and there were 140 houses provided using these temporary, temporary huts from 1920 until 1926, when he started to actually take away the huts and put you know, the brick semi-detached houses back in their place. But this is just an example of the type of accommodation we're talking about, and this is you know, in response to that 1919 Housing Act. It's like the early style of free prefabs in a way, but it's just the way in which they were very quickly having to produce housing for people. Here is that Shirehampton State again here, and this is where they're putting the new houses in the 1920s. From about 1926, they start building um, the rows of houses, but there's still the remains of the original huts from the remount depot seen scattered across the landscape there. And all of those original huts are now gone. There's no evidence for that at all now. The other estate of the four, and this comes back, linked back to Garth England. This is Garth England, where Garth England was living. He was living on this estate. And this is Knoll Park. Um, and just to point out, on the map, you'll see that this is the area of Knoll Park. But over here, these are the later estates going off to the west. This is the Knoll and Bedminster estate further west. So we've come to Knoll, Knoll West, as you would know it now. So Knoll Park here, most of the houses built in Knoll Park were parlour houses. So it comes back to who were these, who were these housing estates actually built for? You know, which sections of the population were going to live in which estates? So these parlour houses, this is actually Garth England's, or the type of house that Garth England was living in. So you've got two reception rooms on the ground floor, three bedrooms upstairs. You've also got um, scullery. I love some of the designs in here. You've actually got indication of where the pram should go under the stairs there. Um, scullery, and then you've got, uh, on the upper floor, you've got the linen cupboard here. It's like, almost like directions about how you're going to use this building when you move into this house. And just to give you an indication, just to prove... So this is being built in the 1920s, although it's interesting when Garth England drew his own house, and you can see this drawing in the, in the exhibition in the Architecture Centre. He's, he's saying it's circa 1932, but I think it was probably built a bit before then, although it may well have not been actually occupied until uh, the 30s. But it was certainly being built in the 1920s, and I can demonstrate why I think that in a second when I start talking about parlour houses in a bit more, bit more detail. This is another parlour house. Now, these ones, um, this is a short terrace parlour house. And here you've got one unit there, another unit there, and so on. Now, these are the ones you will see on Penn Park Road in Southmead or some of the main uh, roads, arterial routes through these estates are quite often this type. When you drive down, you'll actually see this, it's this type of brick-fronted uh, obviously large um, houses but high quality this is high quality building stock they're, they're building during this period 
Now, if you go across, we've just seen on the map, we've sort of gone westwards into uh, the Knoll and Bedminster estate, so Knoll West, really. Now, in this area, they started to build houses that didn't have the parlours. Now, one of the things with the parlour estate, if you had a parlour house, that was two shillings more a week you were paying for a parlour house than if you were in a non-parlour house. So there's the kind of dis dis discrepancy there. Now, the other thing is, after... Um, 1919, in 1921, you had the Geddes Acts for the actual um, the Housing Act. So they actually reduced the money from 1921 onwards. They reduced the amount of money that's going to uh, local authorities to build these sorts of housing estates. Then in 1923, you have another Housing Act comes in, and the subsidies for parlour houses were completely removed. So they were no longer providing subsidies to local authorities for building parlour houses. And you'll see in a minute, when I'm going to show you some actual plans of these estates, you'll actually see that the parlour house almost gets completely removed from the design of these places. And it's also, at the same time, the council are realising that when offered, people weren't choosing to live in a parlour house because of the difference in that rent. So this here is a non-parlour house. And very... Yeah, they're similar. So this is back to the parlour one, sorry. Something back, backwards by mistake there. So this non-parlour house. And these you will see quite in many of the estates, uh, certainly the Knoll and Bedminster estate, Southmead, um, Shirehampton, well not Shirehampton, but um, St Anne's Park. These sorts of later estates from the 1920s onwards are getting these types of uh, non-parlour houses. That's one of, the one of the streets. So again, that's looking down a the street there. And it's interesting, one of my colleagues was saying that they're quite often, when these sorts of estates are kind of monotonous, samey sorts of places. And yet, I look at that and I can tell you, well, in the background there are Terrace B2s and in the foreground MGD2s. Like, they've all got different types. They're meticulously planned and, de and detailed in terms of how these estates are going to be laid out. There is variety in there classic example here where you've got the privet hedges and this is in the 1950s that kind of continual care by the council for here they're just repainting all the windows um, that's one of the streets today in, um, in well, 10 years ago actually 2008 I took that but the privet hedges are still there and it's interesting these houses on the left again these are non-parlour houses in Southmead, those types of houses are called church houses because of the way they've got the gables fronting the streets and they're always thought of as being these church houses. Right, this is where it starts to get the, the technical design of these estates. This is C Mills and I've marked on there the parlour houses in red and the non-parlour houses in orange. And it's, hopefully it's, you can just about make that out on there. The estate was built from the south northwards. So you can see the bulk of the parlour houses are in the southern area. There's one section of, main section of parlour houses going along what is um, Sylvan Road, going up towards the north there, which is the high quality street. You've got parlour houses going up there. But elsewhere, it's been infilled for the later developments of non-parlour houses. And that is because the influence, the redu reduction in subsidies from 1923 onwards, and, but also in terms of the council changing the way the housing stock was actually going to be delivered. Now, if you look at Knoll, a similar plan for Knoll, you'll see Knoll Park on the right-hand side is almost 
entirely parlour houses. The blue is actually houses that were actually built by private developers. So it was a totally different type of estate they were building there, which means you've got a different, if you like, different community, if you like. As you come westwards, this whole area here is 1920s free onwards development, and you are hard-pressed to find the parlour houses through there, apart from along what is Daventry Road coming down on a diagonal through there, um, and also some of the other main roads, occasional specks of uh, parlour houses. Just to point out the Crescent at the very top there, that's St John's, off St John's Lane, so that was also built in the early phase in 1920. Now, what does that mean in terms of the current building stock? Now, I've just put this in very briefly just to show you, I think, just some stories that come out when you actually start to look at the data. On the left-hand side, you've got Hillfield, Seamills, Knoll Park. They're the original estate that was being built out. In the middle part there, you've got the, the post-23 estates. You know, your Shirehampton, which is the rebuild, Shirehampton, Bedminster and Knoll and the Southmead. And then St Anne's Park over here, which is one of the only estates that really was a slum clearance estate. That really took a lot of the people that were being cleared from uh, the Dings in particular. Um, but if you look at the way in which Hillfields has been built, the total is just over 1,500 houses built in Hillfields. The number of parlour houses is a little bit more than 50% across the whole estate. Now, of course, that figure is a bit skewed because Hillfields were built over that entire period up to about 1925. But I've also put on the actual current data in terms of the remaining council houses in the current stock in the council estates at the moment. And I think it's quite interesting when you see where the majority of the council houses have been bought, have gone into private hands out of the council housing stock as a result of the right to buy from the 1980s onwards. And if you look here in the, the Knoll Park estate, it's one of the interesting ones, where you've got less than 20% of council houses now in the Knoll Park estate, which I think in terms of how you're, if you're going to continue with a right to buy policy, it's what are you actually building out there for this type of you know, community and how those communities are going to grow in the future. Because certainly Knoll Park is largely a private estate now, rather than actually a council estate as it was originally built. Just to point out, that, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just housing. There's a lot of the thought gone into these estates as you're having recreation grounds. This is Hillfields Rec in 1922. And allotments. A lot of the time we think about these estates, we think about allotments and gardening. It's a garden estate, so it's bound to have gardens, so you're going to be growing vegetables and so on. In Southmead, where this is, comes from, that kind of gardening and um, allotments was one of the main stories that we uncovered through our Meadows to Meadows project, which we'll go on to talk about in a second. So something like Southmead... Now we're on that subject. It's like, where are these people coming from and why are they being moved? Because they are moved. Do you, basically, at the time, you'd apply, you're saying, I am in need of ha a house. You'd apply to the council for, uh, to be rehoused, and you would be moved to the estate. And in this case, Southmead, in 1931, the majority of the people, it's not very clear on the slide, but the majority of the people are being moved from the north of the river. So the south of the river people, so if you lived in Bedminster, you're likely to end up in Knoll if you applied for a house. 
If you were in St. Paul's and places like that, on the north side of the city, you would go, you'd be placed into Southmead. And just to give you a bit more detail on the, on the actual reasons for people applying and being moved, so in 1931, 300 families were moved into Southmead. They were the first families in Southmead, and nearly 50% of them are just marked down as lack of accommodation is the reason for why they're going there, which is interesting when you think about this is the period with slum clearance, overcrowding, and those sorts of things. It's general need is the reason for being put into Southmead. It's like, I just do not have, my family doesn't have a place to live. We are actually sleeping on someone's floor, or we're sharing a room, we're sharing a house with another family, these sorts of things. But it's not categorized as overcrowding. Overcrowding is a uh, category here, but only 28 families in 1931 were moved to Southmead because of overcrowding. You'll see the other reasons for medical grounds. So in terms of one of the things, it's all about public health. That was the health minister visiting Bristol, not the housing minister, the health minister visiting Bristol in 1933, because this is a big move about the public health. This is the period when we're producing a lot of more municipal swimming baths, things like that. This letter, which we actually, part of, I mentioned Meadows to Meadows, that was because I also, outside of the council, I run a company called Local Learning, co-direct company called Local Learning, we had this project called Meadows to Meters. It's just coming to an end now. And we've been collecting lots of photographs and information about Southmead and actually getting to who were the people who originally were moved into Southmead and how did they end up here. And this is a letter one of the people actually received in 1936. And this, at this period, when you look at the documents, this is when they are starting to clear a lot of housing within the central area, particularly areas like St. Paul's, St. Jude's, these sorts of areas. Um, and this letter, though um, the person who actually um, uh, gave us this information didn't leave us their name, and they've um, redacted a lot of the actual personal information, so we don't know the exact address, but when you look at the records, they almost certainly moved to Eastley Road in Southmead, because that's the, on that date, that's when people were moving into Eastley Road. And um, what that letter goes in to say is that the key issues they're picking out is that they don't want that person moving into that new house in Eastley Road they don't want them to take the vermin with them. So they've got to make sure that they're moving into a very, very clean house. And it goes on to say about how the housewife will find it very easy to keep this new house spick and span and very tidy and clean, keep the vermin out. It's all about that, the health of the family and how you're going to maintain that health. What they actually, before they actually moved in there, the, the second page of the letter describes how they were going to be moved. So you actually went, this family was going from, probably from St. Paul's, ended up going to Knoll for a few days, and then into this permanent accommodation on Eastleigh Road in Southmead, where they would have received a rent book. And the rent book, if you saw the letter saying about how the housewife's duty to keep the house tidy was the, the first rule, you had a huge long list of rules that once you were in this house, you were going to have to maintain the house and you, any breakages you were liable for and so on and so on. <coughs> now just to finish off, I've done all right actually, nearly 30, 30 minutes, not bad. Um, one of the other, my favourite image, this is probably my favourite image from our Meadows to Meadows project. This... Um, so this is produced by Class 4C from Penpole School in 1948-49. Now these boys were originally at Font Hill Primary School. The first school in Southmead built was Font Hill Primary School. And it also had a senior school as well. But after the war, 
that became a girls' school, and the boys had to get a bus to go to Penpole, which was former army, army uh, huts, actually, and that was used as a Penpole school. Now it's um, an Oasis Academy. I think it was Park um, Portway School, secondary school. While they were there, the geography teacher was obviously very heavily influenced by Ebenezer Howard, by the looks of it, because um, they were already building the second phase of Southmead, designed by Nelson Meredith, the city architect. And you can see that in the, where the, the 33 is, around there, that's the post-war housing estate, built along the same garden suburb um, principles. But the geography teacher has asked his... Um, pupils to design Southmead. What, was the, what would Southmead be like for, if they were going to design it? And they basically the whole project built this beautiful model, which we've got another photograph of elsewhere, and they've written a whole book where they actually spell out exactly what features would be in their ideal Southmead. And I'll just say so you've got things like um, flats for old people, telephone kiosks, these sorts of things actually spelled out. Now the houses by Mervyn Stock of 4C. So it'd be one of the boys in that photograph. On the map, the houses are all around the centre. Most of these houses have the same amount of garden. There are 2,800 houses at Southmead. They have the houses on the outside because the people can all go into the centre easily to go to the shops. There are two houses in each block. The houses have three bedrooms and two rooms and a scullery downstairs. These houses are nearly all the same. There are about four or five people living in each of these houses. They are very modern, with electric cooking and lighting. They also have central heating and a refrigerator. The ground front from each house will be about 15 yards, and the gardens at the back will usually be about 25 yards long, so that each householder will have also a very small front garden. Now that could have easily been written by Ebenezer Howard in terms of defining how the estate should be. But just to sort of like to conclude, really, it's, what I like about this is that this is Ebenezer Howard's influence on the actual physical environment of Southmead. And then when the actual children growing up and living there actually get given the opportunity to design their own estate, they actually design something that pretty much mimics what has been built by local authority. However, the densities of that housing there is just far, far less efficient use of land, and that's one of the issues you see with these kind of garden-suburb approach, that yet Ebenezer Howard has planted these seeds of aspirations in these people, that they must ha the houses must be semi-detached at least, preferably detached, must have big gardens, lots of space, lots of trees, and it's when you actually think about the housing that we may, may need now, is that really how we're going to take people on a journey to get the housing that actually that we, we need to deliver for the 21st century? I'm not so certain. We need to actually work with these communities to actually create the housing that the, the country needs. Thank you very much. Luckily, John, thank you, Peter. That was fascinating. Um, now I'm going to hand over to John Grindrod. And um, yeah, so do join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Hello. Um, 
that was that was brilliant and um, slightly worryingly also massively high tech wasn't it and I was looking at my notes which couldn't be more scruffy and my dog ate it uh, so um, you know one extreme to the other and all that um, so hello um, I'm the author of two books I uh, there they are small uh, on the screen um, and they're both really connected and uh, they're both really an attempt to try and understand the place that I grew up, which was on a housing estate on the edge of Croydon. Um, and the first one was sort of looking at how places like Croydon had come to be rebuilt after the war and how, um, how housing estates like New Addington had, had, had come into existence. And I ended up kind of looking at new towns and all sorts of things like that. And then I realised that I'd only really told half the story once I'd done that. And so I sort of focused then on the stuff that was surrounding the housing estate, which was the Green Belt. And so that's what the, the other book's about. So they're kind of my obsessions, really. And I think, you know, looking at the exhibition down the road, it was sort of really heartening to see somebody kind of really pursuing their obsessions, because I, I feel like that's always a good thing. Um, now, uh, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically whiz through some of the stories from the post-war era, sort of following on uh, from where we've been um, and looking at the, the kind of the quite high-tech and experimental different ways that people tried to, um, tried to uh, look at the, the housing problem that had been inherited uh, after the end of the Second World War and up until sort of the late 70s. So, yes, I'm starting with something quite cuddly uh, the prefab, um, which uh, some of you may know, have seen. Uh, this one is uh, round the corner from me in South London uh, in an estate which was the biggest estate of prefabs that were still left. Um, there were 186 of them, but they're slowly being demolished, which is a real shame. But um, the Excalibur estate. And uh, they've, they've got these amazing Arthurian names, so some really heroic. And then there were these little teeny uh, prefabs and kind of quite, quite kind of unexpected juxtaposition there. Um, so uh, at this period, uh, this was 1944, the Temporary Housing Act was enacted. Um, the idea of the Temporary Housing Act was to try and create homes as quickly as possible. Um, and the way to do that, given that a lot of uh, the sort of expert builders were off kind of, you know, either kind of, you know, royal engineers or kind of going fighting in, in different countries. And uh, the idea was to sort of try and use some of the new technology that was that was coming into play in the war. So uh, the prefabrication that was being used to create aircraft, for example. Um, so aircraft factories were turned over to creating prefabricated units uh, for houses instead, which is a really kind of fantastically optimistic and positive use of that technology. So lots of different companies bid to be part of this government-sponsored program to create temporary houses. The idea would be that they would last for about 10 to 15 years, so they weren't meant to last you know, forever. So it's amazing that, that there are still lots of survivors um, of these prefabs. And um, uh, there were five main sorts. There were quite a lot of different companies ended up building different sorts of prefabs. This is a Uniseco. Uh, prefab and um, for a lot of people moving into them it was an amazing experience because um, despite all of that amazing interwar uh, building that had been going on uh, a lot of people were still in fact a huge amount of people were still living in 
pretty terrible squalid conditions, it's especially in uh, inner cities around the country. And so, uh, so moving into a prefab was quite an amazing experience. You had a garden, you had a very advanced modern kitchen that uh, had an electric cooker, um, and uh, you had hot and cold running water, you had an indoor toilet, all these things that you wouldn't necessarily take for granted in your house at that period. And lots of people that moved into them, you know, talked very sort of excitedly about, about this sort of space-age, sort of slightly dandere thing that they were moving into, which now seems slightly, you know, almost hard to imagine, given how small and polite they seem compared to what comes next. But uh, I think the prefabs are a fantastically interesting story. And there's also a weird kind of sort of darker side to them that I hadn't realised when I started to research about them, which was that a lot of the prefab estates around Britain were built by prisoners of war uh, from Italy and Germany who hadn't been repatriated and were still working in Britain in, in 46, you know, 45, 46, and then were still kind of working, building these prefab estates around the country, and quite often people moving into them became friends with the, the uh, prisoners of war, and it was a very kind of weird, curious kind of crossover between wartime and peacetime. And uh, I think the prefabs are a fascinating story for that reason. Nowhere near the amount of prefabs uh, were built uh, that had been expected by the programme. So it was sort of seen as a bit of a failure, despite the fact we look on, upon them so fondly these days. Um, the next thing I'm going to talk about is the Festival of Britain, because nothing really captures post-war optimism like it. Um, this is the Lansbury Estate. The Lansbury Estate uh, was a bit of the Festival of Britain that sort of slightly gets ignored. We all sort of know about the South Bank. Uh, we might know about kind of local things that happened uh, near us. But the Lansbury Estate, which is in East London in Poplar, uh, does tend to get a bit overlooked. And uh, it was the live architecture exhibition bit of the Festival of Britain. And it was designed by a man called Frederick Gibbard, who, uh, who was drafted in uh, to create this estate and essentially Poplar was one of those areas that had been massively heavily bombed during the war and it was pretty pretty much flattened so that it, they were able to kind of completely rethink how that could be reconstructed and what they could build there and Patrick Abercrombie who was a really big name in planning at that period uh, was drafted in to write a plan for London as well as many other cities around Britain. And um, in his plan for London, he talked a lot about the reconstruction of the East End, which was very overcrowded. It was a working-class district of London, and uh, the, it was sort of characterised, really, by industrial revolution building that was no longer sort of fit for purpose. There were little houses built around factories that were kind of quite polluting, uh, people were sharing houses, or they were, uh, or the houses that they were living in were, uh, had no inside toilets. They had no kind of, you know, none of the mod cons that we've seen in those lovely, lovely houses earlier. And um, so Abercrombie is looking for ways of creating a better type of life for people. One of those things is creating more green space, more open space in in places like East London. 
And so the Lansbury Estate is planned around this idea that there will be more open space, that people will have all of these fantastic mod cons in their houses. And so as the live architecture bit of the Festival of Britain, it's going to be this very exciting place that people can go, they can see. Uh, there, was a, there was kind of a, a sort of stupid joke house called... Um, Gremlin Grange that was part of uh, the live architecture exhibition which was a mock Tudor house that was really wonky and falling to bits and it had like all of the problems that could be you know sort of attributed to bad badly built houses so you would sort of went through that and then you went and saw these ex these uh, exhibits of these flats that were being built and Gibbard uh, he combined uh, sort of traditional uh, street life of the period so you have markets and pubs and all of those kind of ancient things from the city and he combined it with all of these modern uh, facilities within the flats uh, they are it's fair to say the flats aren't the most exciting flats in the world and in fact um, considering that they are meant to be you know, showing people a very kind of exciting vision of the future, what we might be moving into, and isn't this exciting? Um, even Gibbard, once, once they were built, thought, oh, God, they were a bit boring, and he was a bit... He was slightly embarrassed that he... I think, especially in contrast to the South Bank exhibition with the Skylon and the Dome of Discovery, that it was a very mild uh, version of a sort of Scandinavian modernism that was popular at the time. But Gibbard did get the chance to do something else that was, uh, that was um, on a much bigger scale, which was he was the architect planner of Harlow, which is one of the very first new towns that were built after the war. Now, the new towns were another thing that Patrick Abercrombie was obsessed with. So if you demolished that whole area um, uh, of central London that you wanted to get, you know, you wanted to move people out, you created more green space there. Where did all the people go that you created all that, all that green space? Well, you moved, you created a green belt around the city, and beyond that, you created new towns, satellite towns, and people would move out to these satellite towns and, uh, and live there, and they would be designed in a very kind of uh, fantastically zoned way, um, so they were sort of taking on the ideas of the Garden City, but sort of moving it on a bit. So you would have neighbourhood units, uh, which had is uh, one of the sort of early bits of Harlow. They had these kind of slightly naive ideas about neighbourliness, it has to be said. This idea that you build a kind of little crescent or a small street and people become friends with them with your neighbours, you know, you all like one another, you pop round one another's for tea, and, um, and that's how you build a community. And the new towns had uh, development corporations, which meant that uh, they could organise structured entertainment for people, and quite often it took uh, many years for uh, more kind of organised entertainment, like cinemas and, you know, even shopping centres, that kind of thing, to happen. So people would have to sort of create their own entertainment quite a lot. So you did have to get to know your neighbours. So that sort of, I guess, worked for the first generation of people that moved there, because you, you kind of had to. If you were moving away from your family and you were moving away to this new town, there wasn't really a lot of option other than getting to know your neighbours. But once the other facilities are being built, well, maybe not so much. Maybe that begins to fall to bits, and it does begin to fall to bits as an idea, slightly. 
uh, in these early new towns. And, um, uh, but Gibbard is, is the architect planner here, and he's trying to do something a bit more exciting than this sort of updated version of a garden city. And one of the things that he does um, is he creates Britain's first tower block, which is uh, the lawn in Harlow. Um, and uh, it's Britain's first point block. Point blocks are a type of Swedish tower block. And uh, he has... Uh, basically, there have been letters written, I mean, years before Britain had any tower blocks. If you look at any local paper from that, from sort of 35 onwards, you'll see angry letters from people about uh, the very thought that tower blocks might be built anywhere. And the, people are angry about the fact that if you had children, you can't, you can't supervise them if you're in a tower block, if they go out to play. And if they stay in, they make a lot of noise and they disturb people. And that becomes the kind of main focus of people's kind of anger about the idea of tower blocks before one's built. Gibbard gets round that here in a fantastically cynical way by uh, making sure that the flats are all uh, one-bedroom or bed-sit flats. So <laughs> if you have children, you immediately have to move out. Um, so uh, that's a kind of amazingly kind of mechanistic way of dealing with that anxiety. Unfortunately for Gibbard and for all of those designers of those pioneering first wave of new towns, the architecture press immediately jumps on them and slags them off and goes, these are rubbish, there's all this open space, everything's too far apart, everything's too mild, um, uh, there's no sense of bustle or neighbourhood, everything's too dispersed, and they, they call it prairie planning, where everyone's sort of marooned um, in, a, in a prairie. So um, that's very sad for these architects who have put a lot of effort into kind of trying to imagine trying to update that idea that we've seen in the sort of 20s and 30s happening in these estates, trying to kind of do it in a new way. And then it sort of feels a bit like a, like a kind of failure. And they want, and architects and planners then look at the next wave of new towns. They try and do it differently, and they want to do something much more urban. So that's something we'll come back to. And uh, this is Park Hill in Sheffield. Uh, this is... Brutalism, really, as we know it, um, designed by two very young architects called Ivor Smith and Jack Lynn, uh, who were both pupils of Peter Smithson, who was one of the uh, fantastic, slightly scary uh, duo of Peter and Alison Smithson, who were hugely influential, although didn't actually get a lot of their stuff built. So they're sort of more famous for the things they didn't get built than the things that they did, really. Um, and... Uh, a lot of Park Hill is based on the Smithsons' ideas for the Golden Lane Estate in London, which was uh, another competition that the Smithsons lost. And uh, the main thing that, uh, that they took, um, that Ivor Smith and Jacqueline took from that uh, Golden Lane idea of the Smithsons, was how do you create flats for families. So we've seen that there's a problem with high-rise flats. You know, people are very anxious about having children in high-rise flats, having families in high-rise flats. How do we get around that? This idea of streets in the sky, that you will create very large decks outside of uh, the flats, much bigger than those sort of little pokey, sort of 1930s balcony access type things. Great big roads, big enough to drive a milk float down. There's a fantastic footage of, of milk floats being driven round. Park Hill. And uh, each of the decks 
because Park Hill's built on a, on a crazy slope, uh, each of the decks eventually reaches the ground at some point, so you can actually access it by vehicle all the way along. It's a, a, a brilliant design, using the topography of the area really well. And it's this experiment in seeing whether you can recreate traditional working-class street life uh, in a completely new, exciting environment. These streets in the sky in this huge concrete complex, Park Hill, which runs all the way along this ridge, um, overlooking the centre of the city. And, um, uh, I mean, it's copied, it's, uh, as an idea, it's copied around the country with varying results, <laughs> fair to say. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of these estates have been demolished. The, um, I used to live next to the Haygate estate in Elephant and Castle. That's gone now. Um, and there are, you know, loads of examples of these estates that have gone. This one's being renovated at the moment, so you've probably seen, you know, the the posh flats that now exist in half of it, because it's happening so slowly. It's almost sort of geological time, but, you know, maybe at some point, you know, before the sun goes supernova, they'll get to the end of renovating Park Hill and also getting rid of all of the original residents, which is the real tragedy of it. That the, It's been a kind of example of class cleansing, really. There are very few of the original residents can afford to live in it now. Uh, in the new bit, which is a real shame. So people are experimenting with all sorts of different ways that you can rehouse people. So the new towns, those first new towns, were slagged off for being really, really spaced apart. People are thinking about new ways of doing urbanity, you know, building things a very uh, more tightly knit way in the middle of cities. And Lillington Gardens in Pimlico, in London, is a great example of this, uh, where another two very young architects, Darborn and Dark, um, approached this idea, and instead of building a great big kind of monumental um, streets-in-the-sky estate like Park Hill in concrete, um, Lillington Gardens is instead this very complex little warren of brick-built uh, flats um, on different levels where people have also have gardens kind of raised on raised levels at different points throughout the, the flats. It's a kind of fantastically sophisticated idea. It's, I mean, people say that the Barbican Centre in London is very easy, easy to get lost in. I mean, Lillington Gardens is the most complicated place. It's really, really difficult. If you're trying to find somebody's flat in Lillington Gardens, it's, it's really hard work because it's quite counterintuitive, a lot of that stuff, because what they're doing is they're trying to put as many people as you would, you would be able to put in a, in a tower block in the same space, but without going above six storeys, I think it is. So um, it's, a, it's a fantastically difficult problem that they set themselves, and they've answered that problem brilliantly, and giving the residents a bit of private outside space each and being able to kind of tackle ideas of neighbourliness in a different way by kind of having people close together but not having them overlooking one another in a kind of, you know, sort of creepy way when everybody's sort of so closely knit. Um, it's a fantastic problem that they've, that, they've, um, that they've solved really well. But a lot of these schemes are... Um, are sort of council schemes or the, you know, local authority schemes or they are, are kind of uh, sponsored by the government in some way. But there are private house builders, um, like those private house builders in the 30s, who were also doing really interesting things. 
in this period. And the most famous of them probably are the company called Span uh, and their architect, Eric Lyons. Who, and Span had been going since the early 50s. Uh, but this is New Ash Green in Kent, which is their biggest thing that they decided to make. Uh, they, they, they had built various estates for people to live in, around, particularly around the sort of outskirts of London. Uh, but this was going to be a, private, uh, a privately created village in Kent. Uh, they would, a bit like a kind of new town, sort of scaled down, with this fantastically um, sort of futuristic Scandinavian-influenced design upon it. So uh, it's a sort of hippie village, essentially, is what they built. No one was allowed to have fences. Everything had to be very open. Um, there's a lot of kind of free flow between the different houses. Um, and certainly when it was built, there were an incredible amount of kind of constant sort of street parties and, and uh, amazing accounts of how, um, of how people interacted in a very open way. There were some, um, there's some kind of t terrifying statistic about the amount of uh, divorces that happened because there was so much sort of wife swapping and kind of general kind of late 60s, early 70s kind of um, outrageousness going on uh, in Span. And then but the really sad thing that happens to, um, to New Ash Green is that the London County Council were sort of part funding it. They said, well, we will move out, you know, X hundred people into... New Ash Green, which means we'll buy this chunk of New Ash Green if you build it. Um, and that helped fund the whole project. Uh, so it wasn't a purely private thing, as most of their other projects had been. Uh, but what happened, of course, is the oil crisis and the, and the huge global crash in the early 70s. Uh, the GLC ran out of money, and they cancelled that. They kind of go, well, we can't do that now. Um, so Span run out of money and go bankrupt and then Bovis, the developer, move in and sort of take over and the rest of New Ash Green is just built in a classic Bovis kind of, you know, boring house way. So you have this amazing kind of futuristic hippie Scandi estate in the middle of the Kent countryside and then this really boring bit tagged onto the side of it. It's a, very, it's a really weird place and if you ever get the chance to go there, do go there, it's amazing. Um, now this is obviously a story that we have all been aware of and thinking about a lot with uh, the, the Grenfell House fire. Uh, it's a totally different sort of story and tragedy from what happened at Grenfell House, obviously, but there are, there are elements of it that, that relate. Uh, this is Ronan Point. Uh, on the 16th of May 1968, Ivy Hodge, who's a cake decorator who lives on the 18th floor, she gets up at 5am in the morning, a month after she's moved in, a month after everyone's moved in, because it's only just been finished. Um, she lights a match under her kettle to make a cup of tea and it blows the kitchen up because there's a gas leak that blows the wall out of her kitchen, which in turn blows the wall out of the lounge and the lounge is in the corner of Ronan Point. And then what you see all the way down there is all of the, basically all the sitting rooms all falling down onto one another all the way down. Um, so that whole corner of the block is blown out and four people are killed. 
Um, it would have been a lot more had the had it not just been that it was so early in the morning, actually, and very few people were in that bit of their flats. Uh, and Ivy Hodge, amazingly, isn't killed, uh, even though she's sort of caught right in the middle of it. And what's happened here is it's a collision of two disastrous stories at once. We've sort of seen the prefabs at the beginning, um, that idea of prefabrication using modern technology to solve the housing crisis, that you don't need traditional builders. You can use, you can use fairly unskilled labour to bolt together these large panels and create tower blocks or you know, low-rise blocks or houses. And uh, prefabrication becomes a massive part of the way that that building is done in the 60s for housing, partly because there aren't enough traditional builders to meet the targets that the government is promising uh, in this period. So you get Labour and Tories kind of trying to outbid one another on the amount of houses that they can complete. The only way that they can be, those targets can be met is through using this system building, these prefabrication techniques. So Ronan Point is a classic uh, system-built high-rise block using these prefab prefabricated panels. Um, people are rewarded for early completion. So there are targets that you can reach. You know, the government is giving people sort of extra money if they complete early. So people are rushing to finish the flats, which means people are cutting corners. When the report is done into Ronan Point, the official report, initially they're sort of saying, oh, you know, the it wasn't sort of bolted together properly and people sort of missed things. There's another kind of investigation that goes on later which reveals much worse you know, conditions, much worse things that happened, which was that a lot of the panels were actually just kind of bodged in place by kind of bits of rolled up newspaper and, and you know, the, the, these very kind of totally inappropriate materials have been used just to kind of wedge things in rather than the, the very tight sort of bolting together that was needed to make the structure solid. There was also a problem in that it was used building a, uh, a system, a prefabricated system called Larson-Nielsen, which was only meant to go up to, I think, six storeys. And, um, and obviously, Ronan Point was 22. And so it was entirely the wrong system and also not completed in a very kind of satisfactory way. So when so it should have been able to withstand that explosion. And you know, accidents happen in tower blocks and blocks of flats um, quite often, you know, and that you know th those accidents are sort of contained and it should have been able to withstand that. But with all of those things going against it, it was never going to be possible for Ronan Point to withstand an explosion of that magnitude. And um, there's a very weird thing that happens with Ronan Point, which is uh, it's actually rebuilt and it reopens a few years later. And quite a lot of the original residents move back in, which is sort of so counterintuitive as to what we might think might happen. And... Uh, it is eventually demolished in the 80s, but it does... Uh, what happens, really, with Ronan Point is it's the end of the construction, the mass construction of tower blocks using these, system, uh, using these, these systems of this post-war period. And, um, and after that, you just see an immediate kind of drop 
uh, in the completions and you know going to sort of different methods of construction after that and different sorts of housing again rather than these kind of big high rise so it's a uh, you know there are echoes of of you know the recent tragedy at Grenfell House but it's a very different story as well but a lot of it is around you know a lot of the problems with Ronan Point are around a kind of over an over ambitious idea of what can be done and that leading to corners being cut this is, this is the Queen Elizabeth Square Flats in Glasgow, designed by Basil Spence. Glasgow was probably the biggest adopter of the high-rise in Britain, and uh, in all the comprehensive development areas where they flattened whole areas, uh, a bit like the Lansbury Estate, uh, that kind of area in, in London that I talked about earlier, uh, Glasgow had tons of those. They, they replaced all the tenement flats with these new high-rise. Um, and uh, this particular block... When the people moved into it, they loved it. It had massive... Well, you can see how big the balconies are. They sort of talked about them with verandas, the residents, because they were so huge. And they used to, somebody I spoke to you know, talked about taking a you know, snooker table out and being able to play snooker on the balconies. They were that big. And you, and, um, but pretty soon, because it was built using a very unusual uh, series of techniques... Uh, it was quite difficult to maintain, and no maintenance really was done on it. So it gradually began to fall to bits. And as it began to fall to bits, that encouraged kind of vandalism. People weren't looking after it, you know, and then the lifts would go, lights would go in corridors, it would become damp. None of those things were being addressed. And then in the end, quite quickly, it was decided that, that these, these flats had to go. And they were demolished in 1993. They were only put up in the early 60s. I think they were, they were started in 58. And... Um, uh, yeah, and they were blown up. And even the demolition of them was a disaster. Somebody was killed in the demolition, and so that was an extra kind of awful thing that happened there. And it's interesting talking to people that live there because they still have very fond memories of the flats, and they, they, love, they seem to love the, the ambition and the excitement of them, and they're very, very sad that that lack of maintenance didn't happen. And it is, it's... One of the things that I loved about researching these things was that almost none of the stories I found out were the things I expected. And the things you always expect people to say about living in high-rise blocks um, is that they hated them, they were awful, they couldn't wait to get out. And that really wasn't the case with, you know, with this block until everything started to go wrong in it. So you know, it, it was a, an interesting case. And a very different can compare this estate, this is Biker in Newcastle with Park Hill in Sheffield because they're very, very similar size. They're quite a similar idea in that they're sort of housing people who, in, who were previously on the same uh, bit of land in back-to-backs, uh, housing them in a sort of vertical but long block of flats that kind of winds around. But Biker is entirely different. So the architect, Ralph Erskine, wanted to compare a different kind of approach when he came to designing it. It was all about being people-centred. So he, uh, he got the residents from Biker involved in the design process. They lived in prototype flats. They told him what was wrong with them. They kind of amended those designs all along. The architects lived on site throughout the entire build period. And um, as a result, 
uh, biker is, ends up being an entirely different sort of experience from somewhere like Park Hill, where those ideas, those slightly romantic ideas of how the working class might live or how people might want to live in the future are sort of imposed on people. Here, they are part of the process rather than just being shown some models in their local library, which is sort of more the process of what people were used to. And, um, you know, it was... Uh, there were 620 maisonettes here, so it's a huge estate, and it still remains very popular with the residents. So clearly something was right about that design, uh, which is interesting. This is a picture um, taken from a film about the last and biggest new town that was built, uh, Milton Keynes. Now, two and a half million of us now live in post-war new towns in Britain, which is an incredible amount of people... <laughs> especially when you consider how little people ever talk about the new towns other than just to be a bit sneery about them. And uh, Milton Keynes is still growing. It's, it's been a very successful development. Uh, the new towns project was cancelled in 1976, and all the money that would have gone into building more new towns at that point goes into city centre um, renovation. And so, all the, so the, the idea then changes quite a lot. It's all about kind of urban renovation rather than building new things away from the city. Uh, Milton Keynes got entirely different uh, ideas around how you might live in it as well. The original plan written in the late 60s includes things like everybody should have a video phone, uh, we should have um, uh, cable TV, everyone should have cable TV, and in fact they, everyone does have cable TV. They create a cable TV network uh, everyone is plumbed into that as the city is built. They have their own TV station. Um, they have all these kind of modern things. Harold Wilson's idea of the University of the Air, which is sort of amazing kind of conception, becomes the Open University, and that's based in Milton Keynes. So very kind of go-ahead um, city with all of these very futuristic things. One of the most futuristic things is this, is this amazing grid of roads that it's built around. And uh, so it has this kind of, oh, hello, uh, has this like kind of waffle effect. Uh, if you look at it from the air, you, uh, all the estates kind of contained within this, this very neat grid. And uh, they're about a kilometre square, each of the estates. And the idea of neighbourliness in Milton Keynes is entirely different from the idea of neighbourliness in Harlow. Uh, by the time Milton Keynes comes around, uh, it's all about well, you probably don't want to know your neighbour, so you'll have all this high-tech stuff. So you can either kind of talk to people that you like who are elsewhere, or you could just jump in your car and you can rush across town and go and do something you do like with people you do like somewhere else. But God forbid you should ever see your neighbours. And one of the weird things about a lot of the estates in Milton Keynes is the houses quite often don't look at one another. So um, and my partner lives in Milton Keynes, so I spent a lot of time there. And uh, there, it is amazing how few people seem to know their neighbours in Milton Keynes. It's, it, it's the total opposite of Harlow, where you're in Harlow, you know, that those, those estates still kind of encourage people to sort of get involved with their neighbours, even if they don't really like them. Milton Keynes, you'd have no idea whether you like your neighbours or not, because you can't even meet them. There's like no, you know, the, there aren't even pavements, you know, outside, outside a lot of the houses so that you could bump into one another. It's quite peculiar. Um, but also very successful. It has worked very well. I love this picture of this woman dialing a bus. I wonder what she's saying. <laughs> cool. Okay. And um, 
Yes, and then we're just left with, uh, after this, the right to buy comes in in the 80s. Um, it's privatisation of housing. This is my estate, New Addington. And uh, 1980, Heseltine announces a moratorium on council house building, uh, which shrinks the council housing pool. And since then, we've seen, you know, the rise of big developers, Bovis and Wimpy and the like, and the retreat of building new uh, social housing, council housing. And so we're not thinking communally on a big scale, really, anymore. And following the Grenfell House fire, I think, you know, we obviously need to look again at underinvestment in our remaining social housing and all of those experiments uh, that were very kind of well-meant and exciting in that period are undermined if people don't look after them and, uh, and don't, and don't realise there is a value in keeping the places and the people within them safe. Thank you. Thank you both for a whistle-stop tour of 82 years of housing. That's really Easy. impressive. Easy. Easy. Um, can I take some questions from the audience? Anyone got any questions? Um, uh, if, could you wait for the microphone so everyone can hear you? As a question for um, John. Um, I wondered, like, there's obviously mixed success in the different um, uh, new towns. What was it about Milton Keynes that seemed to make it more of a success? Was it transport links? Was it availability of jobs? Is yeah, I mean, availability of jobs was a really big thing, actually. The fact that, that it had an economy that, that has kept, you know, being added to all of these years, that it hasn't just relied on one thing. One of the problems with some of the early new towns was they were kind of built around industries that then went into decline like coal. So there were, you know, there were issues around some, some early new towns because of that. All of the sort of, well, not all of them, but most of the early new towns were also very keen on uh, attracting high-tech industries like radar and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, as, uh, as the kind of fortune of those industries kind of waxed and waned as companies kind of get taken over and then, you know, sort of moved away. You know, quite a lot of the other towns have suffered from that sort of thing. And luckily, I think Milton Keynes seems to have kind of, its industry seems to have been quite preserved in the, in the area, which is, you know, the, you know, the Open University is still there at the moment, thank goodness, and that sort of thing, you know, so. It's also right in the middle of the country, which I think is yeah. really key. There's a woman at the back. Thanks. You just talk. Uh, hello. Um, this is a question for John as well. Um, I've never been to Milton Keynes, but um, and I didn't know that that was where the Open University started. And I wondered whether, um, following on from that question, whether part of the part of its success may be that it was for a different community, that having the Open University there meant that it was for different aspirations. So that's a question, sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there is certainly that. Although there was a lot of sneeriness from the kind of... Because it, it was built... You know, there were places like Bletchley and Stony Stratford that were quite big settlements that were, 
that, that have been there for hundreds of years that were absorbed in Milton Keynes. And there was a lot of tension between the academics and the locals sort of when that happened initially. And there were lots of quite funny stories about the kind of the weird collision between lots, you know, sort of suddenly having a town that's got, you know, 50 sociologists all kind of, you know, you know, sort of in the local butchers is quite a, you know, a clash of cultures happens in quite a curious way there. But they all have that. I mean, that's one of the things about all of the new towns. They were pretty much all had some existing settlement absorbed within them. And there's resentment. You know, Harlow had, you know, old Harlow was kind of absorbed in, you know, very resentful about being absorbed into the rest of Harlow. Um, Stevenage, which old Stevenage was um, uh, Howard's End. You know, Ian Forster, you know, absolutely hated Stevenage, you know, was you know, constantly banging on about it all the time. And, you know, it's, it's in, there is a real clash between that, the existing residents and these new comers. So, woman here. Thanks. Uh, you both talked about architects who got it right and architects who perhaps got it wrong in hindsight. And I just wondered what your reaction was to the current changes in statute around building design standards and the fact that um, the rules are eroding even further. And where does that leave architects whose intentions aren't always good? Do you want to answer that, Pete? <laughs> <coughs> um, what, what I was really talking about is almost the, the general decline in the quality of the housing, because when they started out building those houses after the First World War, you had a lot of high quality in terms of the space standards within the houses themselves and the quality of the, the build itself. You're dealing with uh, solid brick-built houses, and many people would say it's the last period of great house building in the country. Um, but gradually through, from 1919 through to 39, the amount of money, the subsidies going in, is actually on the decline, and that then leads to um, you know, the, la the reduction in quality. They are starting to reduce the amount of space within each of the houses. You're trying to get more in the land than you would have done previously. So it's a combination of things. It's not just the, yes, the regulations and, and things are important, but it's actually the amount of money you're investing in the first place probably has a, a, an equal knock-on to actually what gets built, I, w I would argue. And that's the kind of thing I was sort of alluding to, is that if you want to get quality you need to make sure you're investing it from the beginning. Uh, without that investment, as, as seen in many cases, Grenfell is one example, you are actually going to, uh, you know, you're not, you're going to lead to problems. And just speaking up for architects, I guess it's the politicians who are making those decisions rather than the architects. And I think one of the arguments with Grenfell that I've heard from many architects is that um, their, the regulations have been eroded, but also their position in the construction has been eroded so that moving to design and build, it's the contractor who's in whose interest it is to cut costs, who who is the main main man. It's a complex thing. There's many, many things are combining here. Um, so it's about how, where, the, where is that control to make sure that what you're, what you're designing is actually realised. <coughs> many different points that that could actually be lost during that process. I think it should be, well, like I said, it should be, I think, 
that what's interesting about all of those, whether it's Harlow, Milton Keynes, Sea Mills, all these places, there's an, an initial vision for what that place should be. And that vision needs in that investment. And then, as, as you've seen from the, the, the span development, as soon as that investment or, or the, 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 something changes, the new developer comes in, then that vision is completely lost and you don't get the same. So it's, it's, a, it's a whole series of things along the process that I think is, uh, you have to bear in mind through the, hope that makes sense. Oh my goodness, is that Gillian Darley we've got there? You did, no you're not Gillian, you look just like, you are, yes. Could we go to Gillian Darley? I didn't know you were coming, thank you. Hardly dare speak. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask Pete um, a bit more about, so it sounds a bit picky, but I think it's actually terribly interesting how strong a department the Bristol, um, you know, the architect's department in Bristol was in that period from 19 on. And to what extent, because you sort of mentioned at some point that they'd done the outline design and then architects been brought in, or it might have been vice versa. So I was really interested, and I have to say I was also interested, in fact, of your sole woman. What was she doing there? Or were there <laughs> lots of them? And where'd she come from? <laughs> We've got, enough. We've got a room got full of architectural historians. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah so Whittingham is there. Yes. Um, Yes, I sort of discovered her about 20 years ago because she was actually articled to George Oakley, who I was doing my PhD on at the time. So I think her interest in public housing probably came from the fact that he had been working on the Bristol, Shirehampton Garden suburb. Um, but I can tell you more about it <laughs> privately if you'd like. <laughs> it, in terms of what the architects, how that's working, that at the beginning point, the city council commission a series of architects to do the designs on the houses um, and they have a competition and so that demonstration area is almost the, the kind of the, the output from that competition and they're trying to get that standard design. In the end they settle for about a dozen or so different designs whether it's a short terrace or a semi-detached and it's later on you actually get the city architects or the city engineers actually then realising those designs. But as I mentioned a minute ago, as the money declines, although the city engineers are still trying to realise those high-quality housing, when you look at the, um, the estate, say, Southmead, the later estate, where that, the, the non-parlour house I showed you had that nice little alleyway through and the detailing on, on the elevations there, by the time they're building it in Southmead, that alleyway's gone, there's slowly reduction in size and so on, simply because the costs are having to be reduced all the time. And so although they are trying to realise that, had that vision, it's now it's slowly being watered down and lost. Thank you. Got a woman here. Hi. Um, just a really quick question, um, specifically for Mr. Grinrod. Um, you're, you're talking about how the um, kind of the vision of the architect should be uh, sort of taken forward and supported and not um, sort of diminished as time goes on. Um, but you also mentioned that the people, as, as sort of the housing estates progressed, were kind of opting for the, and I might be misunderstanding this, but opting for like the places without parlors, without that kind of extra room. And, um, and one thing that struck me kind of near the end of your, uh, the, the end of both of your uh, speeches was that um, the, uh, it was kind of, it sounded like it was kind of a new idea in the Newcastle scheme to ask people for their input 
on what they wanted. So um, how do you kind of balance sort of, because um, it strikes me that the people who are going for the places without parlors might have been, it sounded like they were doing so because it would save them a bit of money, and of course every penny counts. Um, uh, how do you, what, what do you think people could learn from kind of the need to kind of economically house people, but also not kind of diminish their surroundings? Like, do you, do you feel like lessons are actually being learnt in that area and how that could be taken forward? I don't particularly think lessons are being learned in that area. And it's one of those things where, um, you know, lessons are learned and then forgotten and then somebody has to learn them again. And then, you know, it's just a cycle. It just goes on and on. So, you know, you know Biker did not, did not mark a moment where suddenly, you know, there was a great kind of moment where people power overtook architecture and design and planning. And, um, and even though... You know, lots of those ideas have been taken up by various people over the years. They've not, they've not kind of consistently become the kind of overriding way that stuff's designed at all. You know, that's definitely not what's happened. And certainly, you know, as you say, you know, economics is the reason why you know people are, are um, you know, opting for for you know the smaller houses. And the other thing to sort of bear in mind is that you know, Cathy Come Home is a, you know, you know, one of the really big things that affects housing in this period is that that, that programme makes a massive impact on people's perception of um, how people are living and not being able to afford even sort of council rents at that time. That idea, we look back now and we think that council rents are affordable and that, you know, people can kind of, you know, they're fair and equitable and people can keep them up, but, you know, that isn't the case, you know, and that even, you know, even in this, you know, period as people are building an enormous amount of social housing, it's still not, you know, affordable enough for a lot of people. Can I just quickly ask a follow-up? Why, do why don't you think, why don't you think people are being listened to in that follow-up phase? What, what is it that's, because, you know, there's, is it, is it just strictly that they don't have the economic sway? To but you have to force have some, them, somebody commissioning something where they want to listen initially, so... If you don't, say, you know, Biker was specifically set up with the idea that it would be people-centred design, and most things aren't set up with that as the main aim. So, yeah, I just want to, I just want to ask you a quick question, Peter, about the South Meads. South, South Meads. The the instructions for the women that were coming in for them to keep it clean and tidy. I'm assuming the houses were electric by then. Yes, yes, yes. Good, okay, yeah. just checking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they talk about vacuuming and things like that. Yeah. In fact, there's a wonderful house in Bristol, isn't there, called the All Electric House? Oh, yeah. yeah. That is designed to be perfect for, for the, for the housewife. housewife. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this gentleman here. Peter, question for you. Uh, it's Bristol City Council policy to build low-rise houses around high-rise blocks. Um, the high-rise blocks might not be perfect, but the whole principle was there'd be large open parkland for people to enjoy because they didn't have gardens. Do you think this is a good idea? Yeah, um, <laughs> I was going to give all the political questions to John. Um, but one of the things, the Barton Hill example, uh, which I think one of the things you may be alluding to there, I, I think it's, it's actually, in a way, one of the things we're trying to advocate is it's like the repair of these, these places, 
because actually when you have an estate like with the tower blocks at Barton Hill, you end up with, although they're put in there for the landscape to be used by the residents, they end up feeling a little bit, you know, just wasted space in a way. And what you actually achieve at Barton Hill when they're starting to put those low-rise, or they actually terrace buildings back in along streets, you're putting the streets back in and repairing the kind of urban landscape around the blocks because actually, although a, a tower block has um, is high, a high density, it, when you actually look at the, the space around them, you suddenly you have these windswept, litter-strewn kind of environments that quite often are, are become threatening places for people, whereas if you actually put back proper streets with proper houses, they actually become a more neighbourly place in a way. And I think certainly Barton Hill are some really good, good examples of where that's been achieved, um, I would argue. Um, can we go to the gentleman in the middle there? Um, first of all, I'd like to uh, say that I so agree that um, it has to be maintained and looked after and managed and you have to have caretakers and such like. You can't just build and then go away and, uh, and let them, the lifts break down and such like. And I have seen this uh, having been brought up in South London. But what I wanted to ask you about is you haven't actually spoken about the whole change in transport and how most of those properties were built before the domination of the car mm. and how that has so completely changed the way the space outside these buildings are used and how children don't no longer play in streets if they're filled with cars and dominated by cars and how people don't walk and cycle to, to work on the shops and then they start to spread out and go further and further afield and then they get to, don't get to see. So when you say about people knowing their neighbours, if you get out and actually walk down the street, you're much more likely to get to know your neighbours than if you get straight into a car and drive off. But it's in interesting that in um, early new towns like Harlow, um, the separation of cars and pedestrians was a was a really integral part. So that you wouldn't, you know, that you have those Radburn layouts where you have your kind of cars kind of parked as a separate thing. That you have large pedestrian areas outside your your house so that you know you can your kids can play safely. That whole this whole sort of post-war period uh, in planning is sort of dominated by a fear of the car and different ways to try and kind of reduce, you know, road traffic accidents and stuff. You know, Cumbernauld, the new town in Scotland, really prides itself on having 22% of the, the national uh, road traffic accident, um, uh, you know, sort of number. Uh, you know, and, you know, that's the thing that all of the new towns in this period are, are, are trying to kind of cope with. But, you know, as you say, you know, going to, you know, you go to kind of most sort of tower blocks or most uh, places that aren't built in that way, that are, you know, housing estates that are built in the 50s and 60s, um, and there is nowhere to park your car, there isn't that sort of, sep that separation is kind of quite mildly done, and, um, the, you know, that has caused a big problem, you know. The, the, but that is also true of having lots of, I mean, rather than building car-free sort of estate or very low-car mm. or home-zone type of um, housing that often is happening in mm. 
places in Europe. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. that kind of actually links almost to the question earlier about the kind of regulations involved, because actually mm -hmm. we're finding it harder to deliver things like, from the city council's point of view, harder to live, deliver something like a home zone, because actually people are saying, no, I actually, I actually want a pavement, and I want to know where the road is, I want proper curbs and things. So the idea of home zones is probably on, on the wane within Bristol, although we're starting to, we'd actually start to say, oh, we're actually trying to get much more you know, shared surfaces and stuff in these spaces. So it's, it, there is some change going on that we're, we're not necessarily seeing built out yet, but it's quite an interesting kind of moment in time in, in terms of how many cars, and also in terms of our highways regulations, when you say how many car spaces every unit must provide in the city, you know, you could have a development that you must have 50%, you know, car, car spaces for that number of housing or something. Um, so ideally, you'd have car-free developments being built. Yes, and what happens with car-free is you build it, you do the parking, so it's well away from that. Yeah. yeah, but the highways department wouldn't allow us to build a car-free development necessarily, and the communities around there would also say you're putting in 100 units in this space. They know that 100 units are going to generate more cars. Where they're going to park, they're going to park on my street, and I don't want that to happen, so you must provide parking. Dover Court... Part oh, so of that is managing it, though, too, so mm. that you have agreements with Yeah. Okay, I think we're going into quite a lot of highways <laughs> detail here, <laughs> yeah. and we'll all be relying on driverless cars soon anyway, so might all change. Um, do, can, does anyone have the time? Do we need to wrap up? One more question. Gentleman over there. Um, are we safe in the hands of private developers or should the council start employing architects and building buildings again? <laughs> <laughs> Any private developers I in the room? I, you were looking <laughs> at me there. <laughs> I said John was taking these questions. <laughs> Go for it, Jen. Oh, well, you know, that's one of, the, one of the really big sort of tragedies of the last, like, 30 years has been the retreat of, um, of government and of local government from making, you know, being able to kind of do these things and manage these things properly, you know, having just kind of written a whole thing about the Green Belt and... Uh, there, you know, one of, the, one of the really big issues is that, you know, it's created by planners. You have all of these kind of big strategic planners. They create it, they manage it, they're all, they all go. And then suddenly you've got nobody to manage that. You know, you create this thing and then you have no one to manage it. And then, you know, those public, uh, you know, employing experts is an important thing. You know, the, the whole nonsense about, you know, not having experts and not trusting experts is, you know, incredibly corrosive and damaging. So, you know, I completely think that we should have more um, architects and, and planners, you know, in the public sector doing this stuff, you know, on our behalf rather than private, entirely relying on the market to provide these things, which, you know, it can't possibly, we've seen, you know, from the last 30 years, it can't possibly do. If you, and if you look at our, our local plan policies and things, the way those documents are written, it's just a, a, an area with a number in the middle, and it's an unexpected de a developer to, right, that's the number you're going to be, and you can guarantee that what is actually comes forward will be that plus many more. Um, and I would argue that there should be stronger leadership from local authorities to actually say, no, it needs to be this type of development in that area, much clearer than what is actually written in the policy documents. And I think it's a partnership. It's not going to be, the council is not going to build houses necessarily, but it has to be a partnership with 
housing providers, developers, architects, and so on, to actually realise these these places. Because if we're saying we're placemaking, we're creating new places for people to live, it can't be just one sector building that out, I, I, I don't think. That's yeah, and not entirely profit-driven. Yeah, yes. and it can't be that. If we but were equally, really you, you wouldn't have five guys on ladders painting windows white for the council. You know, there's somewhere between the two. Yeah, exactly. It can't be one or the other. It has to be yeah. a partnership. I would, I think of all those jobs created, though. That's the other side of it. Yeah. Well, thank you all for being a fantastic audience and asking such fantastic questions. And thank you to Pete Insult. How lucky is Bristol City Council to have him? And to John Grandrod for writing his wonderful book. Thank you.